Our reading of God's Holy Word is taken this morning from the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1, and beginning at verse 16, going down through chapter 2, verse 2. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When last we left Second Peter, the apostle was telling us that the Lord Christ had told him that there would come a day when uh, he would be led away to execution, specifically for proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a given. This was something that Christ told him prophetically. Now he is at that point. This letter is his swan song, if you will. And chapter one is all about, I'm going to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to proclaim that you have everything you need in him. I'm going to proclaim that on the foundation of him, you should add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control. Uh, as Peter faces his death for preaching the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter is preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. That is some determination. What is it that gives him that determination? It is not the determination of the human will. Uh, Colson, the uh, of, of uh, Watergate fame, yeah, Chuck Colson, made the comment that he understood that it was impossible for the events that the New Testament describes not to be historical events, because he had seen what happens when. Uh, men try to keep a secret. He said that the most powerful men in Washington trying to keep a secret lasted roughly about three weeks. Once somebody besides you knows a secret, it's no longer secret. That's just the way humanity works. You can't hide that kind of thing. And you can't trust people not to recant if you attempt it. I don't know the history of Mormonism to the level that I would like to, but I do know that of the six men who 
were principally involved in the start of Mormonism, five of the six of them ended up recanting. They ended up declaring, I don't really believe what I said. I had an ulterior motive for uh, promoting this religion. The sixth man, who was their prophet, did not recant. But on the other hand, he was killed in a lynch mob. And so when you're being killed in a lynch mob, you don't really have a lot of time to recant. And so you have to wonder. But five out of six of them recanted. They would not live for or die for a lie. Uh, people don't. People don't die for lives. And yet, when we look to the lives of the apostles, Peter included, of the uh, 13 principal apostles, 12 of them met their demise at the hands of people who hated the faith. Many of them could have saved their lives if they had recanted the faith, and yet they did not. The one who did not meet his death in that fashion, nevertheless, was boiled in oil and was exiled to Patmos. Uh, not exactly the easiest road to hoe, but none of them recanted their faith. What gave them this absolute determination in the face of torture and death? Well, Peter describes it very clearly in the first verse of our reading. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables, which, quite frankly, religious doctrine is, if it's not from heaven. We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. It's nothing in the spectrum of profundity. Peter says the reason why I am willing to do this, I'm willing to die now, and I am working overtime to build up your faith even as I go and face my death, is because uh, this is true. I lived it. I saw it. We saw the majesty, the truth, the revelation of Jesus of Nazareth. We knew what he was because God gave us to know it. We were eyewitnesses. Peter is not alone in this declaration. We're going through 1 John in the mornings, and John begins his admonition in 1 John with these words. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. It's true. It is something that we saw, our hands touched, our ears heard. Um, we did not invent these doctrines. This was not a philosophy of man. 
This was something that heaven revealed in time and space to us. We were witnesses. We would be willing to go to a court of law and swear to these things because they really are true. Um, I will preach the word of God to my dying day because it's the truth, says Peter. We have seen it in the man Jesus Christ. And beyond that, we have had supernatural experience that we have experienced. Peter goes on from saying he is an eyewitness to talking about the voice that he heard on the holy mountain when God revealed to him in vision and in hearing who this Jesus of Nazareth really was. For he received from God, says Peter, the Father, honor and glory, when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we have heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. To the eye, to the ear, Jesus of Nazareth appeared but a man, and he was 100% human. But it pleased God at a certain time to reveal to Peter, James, and John who he really was in the transfiguration. He glowed white with light. His clothes were purified clean beyond what any launderer could clean them, says the Gospels. He was attended to by Moses and the prophets. God himself spoke of Jesus of Nazareth. A voice came out of the rolling cloud of glory. This is my beloved son. Uh, Peter was there. He had experienced this supernatural reality. And uh, all the armies of Rome and all the torturers' racks could not convince him otherwise. Because it was the truth. And yet, Peter says... All of this experiential truth, which is important, I am an eyewitness, uh, the miracles happened, I was there, all of this experiential truth is actually resting on something else. It is not just my experience, but there is even a greater authority that causes me to take my stand against the world. That authority is the prophetic scriptures, says Peter. When Peter talks about what he's seen and heard, when he talks about the miracles he's experienced, he then says, uh, this confirms the word of God. The New King James reading of, we have the word of God confirmed, is just a little weak for what the original says, and even the... Uh, the NKGB footnote, uh, they kind of know that, and so they give an alternate reading. Uh, the footnote is, or we also have the more sure prophetic word. The Amplified translates that as, and we have the prophetic word made firmer still. Uh, Peter says, why am I willing to live and die for this message? Well, it's not just that I have seen the Lord Christ. It is not just that I have experienced miracles. But more importantly than that, God has spoken by his holy word. And these things that we have experienced, they were promised in the word. We were looking for them. 
we experienced them because they were promised in the word. The word was our religious authority and the word continues to be our religious authority. We have experienced what the word promised, but the authority that is under our experience is actually the written word. The Holy Scriptures are pragmatically the stuff of true religion. The Holy Scriptures are given by God to define true religion, to give his promises, to define his covenant, to be an objective light in a dark place. And Peter points to them even over his experience of walking with the Lord himself, even over seeing the transfiguration. These things are authoritative, but they confirm, establish, they are the lived out word of God, the promises that he had re revealed long before Peter was ever born. There are words from leaders in the current church that would charge the apostle Peter with being a fool. They would say to him, you need to realize that our religion is Christ-centered and the scriptures are secondary. In fact, we can, uh, we can divorce Christianity from the Old Testament. We can divorce Christianity from any written manuscript. Because after all, Jesus is raised from the dead. The early church confessed that. There were many witnesses to that. So uh, we don't have to be bound to the Holy Scriptures. We have the experience of the early church. How do you think the Apostle Peter would respond to that based upon what we have read? The Apostle, the highest office in the church you can have, unless you're Messiah, said all the experience that we have experienced, it is standing upon the word of God. It receives its meaning from the word of God. The word of God promised it would happen, and it did happen because God made promises. And you would do well to pay attention to this holy word. That is what the apostle would say. How authoritative should the word be? To what level should we give it the right to define our lives? Uh, is there a point where we could put it aside? Well, Peter actually turns to that. He says, we have the word of God made sure by the things we've experienced, and you would do well to pay attention to it until. And so there is a moment that Peter says, um, you know, you can kind of lay the word of God aside when you hit that moment. It is when the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What is Peter talking about? When the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Well, in describing the word of God, he says it's a light shining in a dark place. He is talking about the world in which we live in. 
the the nature of life is such that you cannot actually prove anything. You you really have to kind of get a philosophy degree and spend huge amounts of money to be told this, but the truth is human reason and rationality cannot actually come up with truth. The philosophers have proven that you cannot know anything. The writing philosophers who sell you books have proven that words cannot mean anything. Uh, the truth is we live in a world that is totally subjective. It is beyond uh, the ability to lay hold on meaning. And even in college textbooks that are for critical thinking classes, they have to assure you that we must, quote, have faith in reason. Think about that line for a second. We must have faith in reason. The reason we must have faith in something at all is because the human is not able to really know anything. Follow Solomon through the book of Ecclesiastes. If you have never read Ecclesiastes from cover to cover and walked with Solomon on the journey he takes there, you are truly missing out on something. Solomon says, I have decided that since God has given me more wisdom than anyone in the world, I am going to apply that wisdom to figure out what's going on on earth. I'm going to look at all the things you can see under the sun, and I'm going to figure out what God is doing, and I'm going to understand the world. And by the time he gets to chapter 8, Solomon says, I can't do this. If I stay up all night, he says that, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, he says, if I stay up all night, I try to think about what's going on in the world. If I try to find any meaning at all, with the most wisdom God has ever given to any man at all, I find that I cannot know what God is doing from beginning to end. It escapes me. I, I am, I'm in the dark. He says, I cannot really know what's happening near around me. And those things that are far out, they are deep and a, a, a mystery beyond anything I can figure out. This is a dark place. And of course, the symbolism of darkness in scripture is not just ignorance, but also danger and evil. Basically, when you have dark, darkness presented, all three things are effectively being conveyed. Solomon says this world that we live in is unknowable, dangerous, and it's sinful. But the day will dawn, says Peter. When does the day dawn? Well, the day dawns when the light comes and drives away the darkness. That day is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is when our Lord shall return to the earth, you shall have the day of judgment, you shall have the reordering of all things, that's when the day will dawn. And at that moment, the morning star will dawn in your hearts. Why is the world dark to men? Is it because creation is inherently dark? Or is there something wrong with men? The truth is, the darkness of the world is in our hearts. The reason we cannot know the world is because there is something wrong with us. 
the reason the world is dangerous is because there's something wrong with us. Sin and depravity, same thing. The darkness is in human hearts. But the day will dawn and there will be a transformation of the human heart, a transformation which is even more than you have already experienced. I find it incredibly important to emphasize that Christianity is a transforming experience. Christianity is truly conversion. You become something you were not. Life is brought from the dead. It is not just keeping God's law. It is not just a philosophy. There's actually a change that happens to you. And yet, even with the changes we have all experienced, having become somebody different than we were, the power of the Spirit bringing us to life, there is still a now and a not yet. There is a need for the morning star to truly rise in our hearts. Having been brought to spiritual life, we still do sin. Having been made to love God, we still rebel. There is in our best works still elements of sinful rebellion. Can you even picture or imagine what it will be like when you are truly divorced from sin and depravity. Now you have been brought to life and you effectively have two natures and those two natures fight and war within you. But picture just for a second what it's going to be like when light has truly dawned, when you don't have a sinful nature, when the morning star truly rises and the light of God permeates your every being can you even in your imagination picture what that will be like? I have many times attempted it and I have always failed. To be without sin, to be without selfishness, to be free of darkness, that is a transformation that we long for with all of our hearts and it will be something we can't imagine until we have it. And Peter says of the written word of God, of the Old and New Testament, of the 66 books of the Bible, you should pay attention to it as the highest authority that defines your experience until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So, yes, there will be a time when you can lay aside the word of God. It is when the Lord Jesus Christ rules the world in totality and you are totally free from sin because the light of the morning star is in your heart. But until that happens, you should pay attention to these writings. They are our authority. This whole business of religion, one of the first questions that must be answered is, what is my authority? We are talking about eternal matters. We are talking about things that will determine the ultimate end of our very existence. It seems that we probably ought to give some thought to who you're going to trust. I stand up behind the pulpit. I say things to you. 
why do you trust me? What is it about this Lord's Day that makes you receive these words? I would certainly hope it is not you think I'm clever enough to figure out the meaning of the universe because I'm absolutely not clever enough to do that. What is our authority? If you are an individualistic existentialist, which is where most Americans are today, you say, well, my authority is myself. I will use my wisdom to explore all things under the sun. I will come to religious authority based upon what I think. But as we have already seen, the wisest man who ever will be, who is merely a man, he took that journey and he ended it by saying it can't be done. So uh, this is a fool's errand and you will end in frustration. But the answer of religious authority, even within the visible church, uh, it is not a given. On any given Lord's Day, there are people who name the name of Christ who are pursuing discipleship, but they put their trust and faith in very different places. If you are a religious liberal, you put your, play, your trust in group human reason. That's your authority. What does the wisdom of the group think religion ought to teach? And if you put your trust in such an authority, you would assume that as time goes by, the answers will change because the group's whim will change. The spirit of the age will give a different answer, and so tomorrow's answer will be different than today. And if you look at liberal religion, that is exactly what you see happening. In a liberal church today, there are set answers, but they will be different 20 years from now. And if you were to bring people from the liberal church from 50 years ago and put them in the liberal church today, they would be shocked at how different the answers are now, but they really shouldn't be. If your authority is what the group thinks, I mean, good luck with that. That's a shifting sand. If you are Romanist, you place your authority in what the current religious hierarchy thinks. It takes away some of the democracy, but it's effectively the same sort of thing. If you're a Romanist, you place your hope in what the clergy have received from God. That may sound slanderous, but I assure you it is not. It is officially Roman doctrine that God has given to the priesthood, to the bishops, to the prelates, a revelation which is higher than Scripture and can define Scripture. God will speak to you through the human beings who run the Roman church, and that will be your highest authority. Ending, of course, with the guy in white with the big hat. Um, God speaks through the Roman church. And that is why the Roman church looks so different than the world. Why it doesn't seem to be utterly human and frivolous and ever-changing, just effectively like the liberal church. 
If you are an Eastern Orthodox, you put your faith in some of the teachings of some of the early Christians. But if you are a Protestant Christian, your highest authority beyond your spiritual experience, beyond your reason, beyond anything you were raised with, beyond any family teaching, your highest authority is the Holy Scriptures. It is where you place your feet and say, this is true. It is where you place your feet and say, even if I don't understand this, I know it to be true. God will reveal its truth to me as he sees fit. That is the question of authority for a Protestant Christian. And if that is not your authority, you don't really deserve the term Protestant. Because we agree with the Apostle Peter even beyond what he had experienced with Jesus Christ, even beyond having seen the transfiguration, even beyond all that, the highest authority is the word of God. It is a light shining in an otherwise dark world. And you do well to pay attention to it. Now, that sort of claim does require a little bolstering. And the apostle goes into that as we end the chapter. Why is it that we should trust the word of God as the highest authority? Well, um, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter says, again, rather straightforwardly, there's not a lot of mystery to his words, uh, the Holy Scripture is different than anything else in the world. It is literally what God himself has spoke. Now, Peter brings in holy men of God, wrote, but they were moved by the Holy Spirit. God used the holy men. We find the personality of Paul and the writings of Paul, we find the personality of Ezekiel and the writings of Ezekiel, and yet it was the Spirit taking hold of them, using them, producing his word. They did not have a choice of what they would say. And it's interesting, as you read the Holy Scripture, that will come up from time to time. You will have prophets like Jeremiah say, I'm really sick of doing this. You will have Ezekiel uh, sit dumbfounded and bitter, using his words, after he has received the revelation of God in the first chapter. God has taken hold of him, and Ezekiel isn't really happy about it. He doesn't like what God is saying, so he ends up stunned and bitter by the river, and God lets him cool down, and then they go on. But the Holy Scripture is not a matter of what men chose to write. If human beings were going to write a religious text, it would not be the 66 books of the Bible. Look at the other religious texts this world contains, and one of the things you will be stunned by is how utterly human they really are. I've 
read them, I teach them. I, in good conscience, try to teach them with all fairness. But one of the things that strikes me about everything I have read, even the most profound, is how utterly human these texts are. They may speak with profundity, but it's human profundity. But when I come to the scripture, I encounter a person, an author. I feel the personality of the one who has written this, and it is truly alien to me. It is not human. God is speaking. God has spoken these words. And ultimately, the authority of the Holy Scripture rests on its author. The Apostle Paul, when he will give his own swan song, when he will write 2 Timothy, he will speak of God and say, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which has been entrusted to me against that day. How do we know God? We know him by what he has said. God has revealed himself to us. He has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, and yet even the revelation of Christ, because remember, Peter talked about the transfiguration, even the very revelation of Christ finds its meaning in the written word of God. For whatever reason, God chose to kind of communicate in the old army way, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. Well, Jesus Christ's life and ministry in the Gospels is tell them, but the entire Old Testament is tell them what you're going to tell them. God promised everything that would happen in the life of Christ. There is nothing that our Lord Christ did that God had not promised. And then when Christ is ascended on high, the rest of the New Testament is basically telling them what you told them. What has happened? This is the meaning of it. What is going to happen? Well, this is the meaning of it. The Holy Scriptures are a treasure beyond compare because they are literally letters from God himself. As we go into the next chapter, which we will look at more on length next Lord's Day, we begin to see Peter talk about false teachers. But it is important to realize that Peter himself never put the chapter break in. It's there for our convenience, for our reading, for marking the Bible, but it came about roughly about 600 years after Peter laid his pen down. Peter never saw a break between chapter 1 and 2. And when you take away the chapter break, you realize that that word but is very significant. But, says Peter, after he talks about the Holy Scriptures, there were also false prophets among the people of old, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will bring in secret heresies. They will even deny the sovereign Lord who bought them, and they will bring swift destruction on themselves. What does that little word but do when you consider it? Well, it's a contrast. Peter has been showing us his final authority, 
he has been impressing upon us that it should be our final authority. And then he gives us the contrast of what is not that final authority. You have the word of God, a light shining in a dark place, but there will be false teachers among you. So what does that say? It says anything in contrast to this light, anything in contrast to the word which God has spoken to us, anything is literally false teaching. There are open calls from very large pulpits that we should divorce our Christian faith from the word of God. We should do that because the word is so problematic because the world will not receive it. What would the apostle of Jesus Christ say based on this text? He would say, you are introducing heresy. You are poisoning the church of God. You are bringing death to what is spiritually alive. The apostle would not gently respond to this at all. If it is not of the word of God, it is death. If it is not of the word of God, it is destructive. If it contradicts the word of God in any way, you have struck at the vitals of true religion and you have denied the sovereign Lord who bought you. Many years ago, I was in the office of a somebody in the church of God. If I gave you his name, you go, okay, I know who that is. Um, he and I were debating a few things. And uh, as, as the debate rolled around, it came to Calvinism versus Arminianism. And he was on the Arminian side. Uh, I asked him, you know, why, why do you believe that? And he pointed me to this very verse. He said, you have false teachers. They deny the sovereign Lord who bought them. Well, if he has bought them, but they are denying him, doesn't that mean that they have fallen from the faith? Doesn't that mean that they have lost their salvation? What says you? This is a very strong argument on their side. It'll be brought up. Consider, if you will, the second psalm. We sing the second psalm quite often in our worship. The second psalm celebrates the covenant between the father and the son. In the middle of the psalm, you have the father say to the son, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the kingdoms of the earth as your possession. What comes next in Psalm 2? I will give you the kingdoms of the earth. They'll be your possession. Um, you will gently care for them. They will be the kingdom of God. Uh, the, 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 the whole world will now be under your control, right? Not at all. We have sung Psalm 2 enough to know the next lines are, you shall crush them. You shall break them to pieces like dashing pottery. You will take a mace and smash them to pieces. But I give you them, you purchase them with your blood, you can do with them as you will, 
There is a purchase of God, which is the apple of his eye. But the purchase of God, which he is bashing with a mace, is probably not that. Our Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross did not just buy the church. We are his special possession. But the Father said to him in the covenant, Ask of me, and I'll give you the whole earth, and you will do with the earth as you desire. So there is no one currently living who does not belong to Jesus Christ. Now, are they of his covenant people? Are they the apple of his eye? That's a pretty significant question. But there is no one who does not belong to him. The nations have been given to him. He has purchased them. And if he owns them, how arrogant and utterly foolhardy is it to say to the one who has purchased the nations and will bash them to pieces, I will twist your words. I will present false doctrine. I will teach men what is not true. Peter is emphasizing the amazing arrogance, the incredible jutted out rebellious face of the one who would introduce false teaching into the church of God. It is not lost on me that the Lord Christ will evaluate my ministry on that day. He will examine it. He will ask me what I have taught. He will hold me accountable for every word I have ever said to you. I am glad that God is gracious. But it would be the height of foolishness to not really have a certain fear that God is going to evaluate every sermon, every Bible study, because I have spoken of him. I have told you what God says and right in the very Ten Commandments is, you shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain. These false teachers don't have that. They don't see any consequence to introducing false teaching. They are denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. They are in his hand. He will do as he wills with them. But as we finish this sermon, please realize the contrast. You have Peter saying the word of God is God spoken. It has him as its author. It is the, 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 the authority of authorities. And anything other than that, anything. This is not just an open rebel like Andy Stanley. Anything that is not in accord with the word of God anything at all, that is false teaching. It will be secretly brought in. False teaching that is openly an affront to the word is usually rejected by the church. But most false teaching is brought in under smooth, emotionally palatable, uh, gentle words that even sound loving and humane. But it is poison nonetheless. May God give us to follow the godly example of the one who followed Christ, 
May we have his word as our final authority. May we deny even that which seems so palatable. 